Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences is a proud sponsor of this I Believe podcast. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. Okay, so we have our next speaker up is Dr. Caitlin Stone. She's here to talk to us about a topic that obviously came up a lot in our discussion with Anne about talking with our children about cancer. So let me just introduce you guys to Dr. Stone, and then I'll bring her on the stage. Dr. Caitlin Stone received her bachelor's degree in psychology and child development from Tufts University, and she earned her PhD in clinical psychology from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Dr. Stone currently serves as a child psychologist for the Children's Hospital here at Vanderbilt um, in the Nashville area. So, Dr. Caitlin Stone, welcome to the stage. And I guess just to kind of outline the structure of events, we are still planning on having a few of the patients that I discussed with ahead of time um, to come and talk a little bit about talking to your children about cancer. So at the time, whenever Dr. Stone is ready for you, like we'll make sure to reference that. Thank you so much. I don't know if I've ever spoken into a microphone before, so you'll have to bear with me if I'm uh, yelling at you or just tell me, make sure you can hear. Um, yeah, I'm Caitlin Stone. Um, I've been here in Nashville for eight years working at Vanderbilt. Um, I'm also a parent, so um, you know I think that that changes your life in a way that you don't expect. And when difficult things happen, you they you know your children are usually the first people that you think of. Um, so I'm hoping that today we can have more of a discussion and less me talking at you about this topic. Um, I work with children of all ages and parents. And so, you know, I think usually people who are experiencing the difficult thing, whether it's a difficult diagnosis for your child or a difficult diagnosis for yourself, you are the ones who, who know better than me <laughs> um, what works, what doesn't work. So um, I'm hoping this can be pretty collaborative. And I'm, I'm, I'm also so pleased that we have some folks that want to come up and, and discuss things with me later. I think we'll have plenty of time for that. Um, okay, great. Um, so I think when, as I started to say, when, when someone receives a difficult diagnosis, the first people we think of um, often are our families and the people that are most important to us. Um, and if we have children, um, we think about how we're going to let them know about it and how it's going to affect them, you know, not just in the very moment, but how it's gonna affect them for the rest of their lives. Um, and I think common questions that come up are, you know, should I talk about this? You know, is this something that they need to know about? Um, when should I share information about it? Should I do it right away? Should I wait until they're a little bit older? Um, and then how to talk about it. And I think there are a lot of different ways to think about this. Um, one, one way that I thought would be helpful to start with is just to um, go back a little bit and talk about um, stages of development, because I think children at different ages 
they're, you know, just like when you're um, talking to kids about anything, whether it's um, trying to get them to eat broccoli or, um, you know, not hit their sister, you know, there are different ways to approach that depending on how old a child is. So um, a little child development primer here. So um, we consider infants to be kids that are up until the age of two, so really babies. Um, we have young children, you know, more that preschool age range, about to start school. Um, School-age children are kind of right in the thick of, of elementary school. Um, that pre-adolescent, you know, most fun age ever, pre-teens, um, thinking about, you know, kind of bridging that period of time between childhood and, and being a teenager. And then adolescents who are really you know, forging their own identities and getting ready to become their own person and become a young adult. So when we think about babies, um, we probably don't think a lot about talking to babies about much, although I know we kind of all naturally do a lot of talking and, and playing with babies when we're around them. Um, I think the biggest way that uh, a cancer diagnosis could affect um, children at this age are really just changes in their routines, right? We know babies love to just know what to expect in terms of when am I going to eat, when am I going to sleep, when am, when am I playing, and how, and who's doing that, and, and how do I feel safe? Um, so that's really, I think, going to be the biggest effect on, on children of this age. When, when routines change for, for, for infants, um, that can cause agitation, it can cause difficulties with eating and sleeping. Um, and when routines change or if things aren't happening as consistently, um, infants may be more susceptible to colds or tummy troubles, indigestion, um, so just things to be aware of. Um, how to help with that? Um, just like we would want to comfort a baby in any in any situation, providing physical contact and reassuring attention to the baby when you can, um, maintain their routine as best as you can. Um, you know, this schedules get messed up for all sorts of reasons, but as much as you can, keeping things consistent. Um, and then just giving a lot of physical attention, you know, and having things prepared for yourself to say to an infant. Um, it can bring up a lot when babies cry. <laughs> You know, we, none of us really like to listen to that sound, but especially if you're having a tough time yourself um, or your loved one or your partner is having a tough time when a baby is upset, it can just bring up a lot more. And so having something prepared that you can say, like, I love you, I'm here, and I'm sorry it hurts, or I'm sorry you're hungry, or, you know, I'm sorry I can't be here all the time. I should say, too, along the way, if there are um, questions or comments or something that hits you that you wanted to say more about, I'm happy to, happy to have y'all interrupt me. And I'm from New Jersey, but I say y'all now, so you'll have to excuse me. <laughs> I catch myself every once in a while. Um, so moving on, thinking about young children. So this is really that kind of toddler, older toddler to preschool age range. Um, Children at this age are really concrete, and meaning what's important to them is what's right in front of them. So, you know, what am I playing with? What am I doing in this moment? They're not really good at thinking about what am I doing even in an hour from now. They're really focused on what they're doing that's right in front of them and what they can see. Um, 
these, this age range is famous for, you know, asking why every, every 10 seconds or so, you know, and they, you know, may ask the same question over and over and over again. And in this context, you know, that might be tricky because you may feel like, well, I already answered that really tricky question that you asked me, you know, two, two minutes ago, why are we still talking about this? So just expecting that that's normal. It doesn't mean that they're getting stuck on something. It's just pretty common at this age. Um, sleep problems may be common. Um, when children can sense that something is stressful or going on with, with moms or dads or other people in their life, um, it can affect their routines and sleep. It could also make them more clingy at night, like not wanting to be away from you at night. Um, not wanting to go to school, for example. This is when we start to see if there are signs of any separation anxiety. This, it usually comes out at, at around this age. Um, and just for everyone, everyday challenges might just feel even more frustrating than they are when you have a preschooler running around, um, both for them and for you. So just giving your child and yourself some grace around you know, when things do get frustrating. In terms of um, communication and how to approach this age range, as I said, because children really understand things in a very basic and concrete way, it's helpful to use um, very simple and truthful words and using the words that are the real words like cancer or chemo because sometimes as adults we want to I think soften the blow of certain things and might use words that are a little bit more vague that we understand but really won't be super meaningful to a child at around this age. That'll change and we'll talk a little more about how to talk with children that are a bit older. Um, with all of those questions they may be asking you, it's okay to say that you don't know. Uh, I think that can be really threatening um, when you don't have an answer, you know, both for, because you want to answer your child's question. It can also be scary if you feel like, well, yeah, I really don't know the answer to that. Um, but that's okay, and kids understand that we don't always have all the answers, and, you know, a way to approach that could say, like, I don't know right now, but let's, you know, I'm going to figure that out, and I'll, I'll let you know when I have the answer. Um, this one always sounds a little ridiculous to me, but young children have all sorts of ideas about all sorts of things and they get scared and don't understand. So making it clear that um, cancer is not something that they can catch, um, it's not contagious, um, and, and that's a very common worry that children around this age have. Um, you can also expect that there may be a return to more immature habits like trouble with potty training, um, trouble with thumb sucking, for example, just, you know, we hear some of the things you might hear about when, if a, if a family chooses to have a second child, that kind of regression that you may see in the older child can also be common when there's um, someone in the family having a medical event or medical-related stress. Um, and I hate it when people tell me to, what to do, but <laughs> you know, learn, you know, I think the fun thing about having a young child when you can step back and get beyond the daily stress of it is that they live life in the moment. They experience so much joy and love um, just having fun and experiencing the world. And, and so as much as we can learn 
from kids in that way and just be in the moment with them when we can, um, I think is a helpful reminder for all of us, something I have to remind myself of, for sure. Moving on to um, you know this kind of kindergarten through fifth grade age range, so thinking about elementary school children. Um, children at this age are still primarily processing things through play. So we see children acting things out when they're playing, um, both at home on their own or with siblings and also with their, with their peers. Um, at the same time, their language is, is progressing very rapidly. So they understand a lot more than we think they do, they're hearing things, um, and they're able to talk about things, including their emotions and what they're thinking a lot more effectively than younger children are. Um, at the same time, they, they may take some time to process information. So if you have a discussion about a cancer diagnosis and um, they don't react in the moment and you're like, well, what's going on here? What, you know, why, why is he not, why is she not having a response? It's common for kind of a delayed response to happen. So, you know, a couple hours or, or the next day for a child to have a million questions or to have some difficult behaviors. Um, you know, family at this age continues to be that secure base for children. Um, but also peer relationships are starting to become more important as well. So, you know, Kids are starting to have play dates. You might have more children in your home. Um, and other, you know, that also offers a nice opportunity to get support from other families that you've met, you know, through your children's friends. Um, how to approach conversa conversations at this age range. Um, continue to answer the questions they have as many times as they're asked as well as you can. Um, Children at this age, in terms of specific things, it's okay to share information about the name of the cancer that somebody has and what the basic treatment plan is going to be. Um, children like to know how things are gonna affect their daily lives. So, you know, who's gonna be picking me up from school? Who's gonna be making me dinner? Um, who's gonna drive me to soccer practice? Which seem like little things given what, what a patient is facing. And at the same time, that's their life. That's, that's what they're experiencing. So those are common things that they'll wonder about. I think it's important anytime something's going on and that's changing the dynamics of a family or causing stress, it's important um, when you can to find someone at school that you know and trust that you can communicate with, um, whether it's your child's teacher um, or another administrator at school. Most schools have at least a counselor, a psychologist that is there at least some of the time, um, just so that they're aware that this is going on and there may be moments in time where either you know, the child is having behavioral issues or might not be able to you know, complete homework in the same way as other kids. Another way to communicate um, if it feels difficult to have a direct conversation with a child at this age is there, there are a lot of books that um, include stories about a family member being sick. Um, I should have looked up, I don't know if there, and I, I'm gonna send you, all of you a, a list of resources after today, um, and I will look to see if there are any that are, are spe uh, specific to ocular cancer. Um, but there are lots of ways to kind of read a story and look at it together and, and, and have, have that be the way to discuss a diagnosis with a child. 
And then along the same lines, just continuing when, when you can as a family to, to do the fun things, to do the things that bring you joy, and um, just encouraging your child to be active, be creative. Um, not every child's going to want to play sports, but doing the things that, that they really enjoy. Um, I think this is a great, this next one is kind of a great tip for any child. Um, Creating a place in the house where it's okay to have big feelings. So whether it's, um, you know, it does. This doesn't have to be fancy. It could be um, a specific place on the couch where there are pillows. It could be like a little tent that you fill up with favorite toys and and um, you know pillows and blankets. But just a place where it's okay for a kid to go and and yell and scream or you know punch a pillow or cry and know that that's safe and that's okay to do. It can also be a nice tool when, if you see your child, like, oh, I know this maybe isn't going to go so well, or there's going to be a behavioral issue, um, to kind of prompt them to say, why don't we go? Why don't we go take a break in our big energy corner, or whatever? You, you don't have to call it that, whatever you want to call it. Hmm. Yeah, a safe place. Yep. Yep. And that's could be a nice thing to think about at school too, um, a safe place or a safe person if a child needs a break. Um, yeah, and then finding, um, at this age, there start to be peer support groups that are available um, in the communities um, where kids can meet and talk with one another about what their experiences are and just another way to kind of process things. Um, so preteens, um, you know, I think developmentally at this age, um, kids are really starting to start to swing back and forth between family and friends, and friends become such an important part of life at this age. Um, children are figuring out who they are in relation to their friends, um, and you know you'll you'll just see a lot more involvement with the, with their peer groups. Um, with the onset of puberty at this age, emotions become more volatile and sometimes um, unpredictable, and just big a lot of big emotions can happen, and that's normal, and we expect that. And so a lot of this development stuff is just so that we know, okay, like this is what we're expecting at around this age, so we're prepared for it. Emotions might also be somewhat threatening for children at this age because a lot of teenagers feel like, okay, well, I'm not supposed to be acting like a baby, or I'm not supposed to be crying, or I'm not supposed to have this big reaction to things, um, and, and, and preteens really want to be grown up, and so, you know, if, they, if they're crying or if they're upset, they might think that that's wrong or means that they're acting like a baby, um, which is really a thing that they're trying to overcome and not be at that age, so, you know, just, again, a, a sensitivity that a child at this age might have. So again, like I was saying, expect that just generally that um, this age range is, is tricky when it comes to emotions. Um, be available for conversations and for um, just being there physically with your child, but don't necessarily, you don't have to feel like you have to push them to have um, conversations if they're not in a space to do that. This is an age where, um, and with younger children too, where Physical symptoms might take the place of stress that a child's having. So some children will wake up and say, like, oh, I have a stomach ache or my head hurts um, every morning. I don't want to go to school. Um, and that, you know, those are common things that we see. Um, so just being aware of that. Um, 
you know, encouraging time with friends and peer groups. So children are old enough at this age to want to um, protect a parent who's sick or to be there for you all the time, but making sure that they know it's okay for them to still do the things that feel fun to them. Um, and when questions come up, just answering them as clearly and using, it's okay to use more kind of more, start to use more complex like scientific information. Kids at this age are starting to learn about, you know, cells and biology and understanding how the body works a bit more. So it's okay to use um, that more specific language as you feel comfortable. And then on the other hand, if your child is crying and wants you to hold them, that's okay too. You, you know, if, if your 13-year-old wants to be held and cuddled um, just like they were when they were younger, um, allow that to happen and, and know that that's just what they need in the moment and, and letting them know that that's okay. And finally, um, Teenagers or adolescents, so these are really middle school, high school age children and, and children that are about to launch into early adulthood. Um, obviously, children at this age tend to understand a lot more um, than, than younger children. They're moving towards their peer groups and developing their own independence. Um, and that can be tricky because when, as a teenager, when you know that your mom or your dad um, or even a sibling is having a, a health issue, you may, may develop some feelings of guilt that they can't be there, or they don't wanna be there all the time. Um, they may also be worried about upsetting you or upsetting themselves by asking questions that maybe the answers are hard to hear. Um, teens are also get to be pretty self-conscious about anything that makes them different from their peers. So, you know, having a family member who's sick, um, or not being able to do things maybe in the same way that other kids do might just be extra sensitive to them. Um, so how to approach conversations at this age, follow your child, your teenager's cues um, for how much they wanna hear, um, expect that those emotions are gonna come out at different times and come out sideways sometimes. Um, this is the age where you can be really clear about, you know, um, who else you've shared a diagnosis with. So if you've, you know, talked to an aunt or uncle, if you've talked to a close family friend, if you've talked to um, other people that are in, in your circle and in your world, that can be helpful because then a teenager knows, you know, I'm not the only one who knows about this and can even seek those people out to talk to if they feel like they need someone else around, um, aside from you to talk to. Talk to. Um, just expecting erratic sleeping and eating schedules. That's just uh, pretty typical for kids generally. Um, this is the age two where we wanna watch, be watching for changes in behaviors or unexpected behaviors um, and, and watching for alcohol and drug use. This is you know, a common thing that teenagers get exposed to at this age um, through peers and at school. Um, but anytime you see a real, the warning signs of that would be a real change in behavior, the change in routine, you know, sleeping all the time or being up in their room more than you would expect. Um, and just giving some room for teenagers to be defensive and hiding their feelings, um, you know, as long as it's not, you know, isolating themselves completely where they're not seeking out any comfort or support, you know, it's okay um, for them to be defensive and not wanna express their feelings and thoughts all the time. So that's my quick kind of 
primer on different um, stages of development. Are there any questions or thoughts about about that child development piece? And then we're gonna like kind of get into a little bit more of the nitty gritty around um, discussions. Sure, please. Um, no, I just was thinking, um, just you let us know when you want to have those those other patients. That I did double check with them. They're ready to come up and, and to help speak. Um, we can also have them just grab a chair and they can just have a seat up here with us. Um, but I loved what you talked about. And one of the things that I wanted to, I guess, personally ask you maybe to just, as we encourage you guys, if you have questions, do use your question cards. We will bring those up. Um, we'll have... Uh, those in the room, uh, Melody, Julie, Hannah, uh, if you guys can decide who's going to gather any of those questions. But if you do have specific questions about, you know, how do I address this or how do I address that, um, go ahead and write those down and we can bring those up. That way, because um, we, don't, we don't have the ability or the time to be able to pass the mic around the entire room every time. So write those questions down. We'll pass them up here. Um, and I don't know if you want to cover anything else, but if you, uh, if you want to, we can move into the panel soon. Okay. I have a couple more things yeah, that that's I'll just totally cover fine. that I think will be helpful and then we can move like I said, to the panel. Um, so um, I just wanted to address a little bit more the idea of um, like when and how to talk to kids and, and when that makes sense. Um, I think um, an instinct as a parent is when something's wrong, we want to protect our kids. We don't want to have to give them bad news. We, we want everything to always be good for them. Um, Unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, that's just not how the world is. And so children of all ages will know that something's going on um, as hard as we try to, to hide things, whether it's a, a change in a family, like a divorce, whether it's um, an illness in a family member, kids know. And so when we leave them to their own devices to figure out what's going on, that can go not great because their little imaginations are so powerful. They can imagine that all sorts of things may be happening if they don't have information. Um, it's also, I think, helpful to think about not um, having them overhear a conversation, um, even if you don't, as much as we try to keep these things private, um, kids are pretty good at just overhearing things that, that their parents are talking about. Um, Choosing not to talk about a diagnosis can also create more stress for you as the patient, you know, feeling like I'm having to keep this secret um, from a child and, you know, just adding to that daily stress. I saw these words that you had had up here earlier, and I was thinking that those are also really relevant to what we're talking about. Um, if you choose not to talk to a child, it can also communicate to them that this is just too scary and too big to even talk about, and then that can kind of just make their fear bigger. Um, and I think one thing, one point I really want to have y'all remember is that this doesn't have to be a one-time discussion. This is a process and something that will happen over time. Um, so you don't feel like you have to have all the answers or talk about everything in one, in one, one conversation. Um, take time to prepare, mostly just for yourself. You know, talk through what your thoughts and feelings are, you know, with your... Um, with your spouse, with a friend, or with a medical provider. Write down the most important things that you want to convey. Um, and in the context of the conversation, just follow your child's lead and see what they ask you. Um, it's okay to show emotion if you're upset. That means that it's real, and it, it lets them see that that's okay. Um, 
you're also giving them permission to share their emotions and thoughts with you. So that's a good thing. Um, and like I said, just being aware that um, just like your treatment and your approach to things and what it looks like over time will change. It's okay. It's good to let them know that. Like we're talking about this now, but things might change over time. Um, in terms of answering hard questions, like, you know, most children may think, you know, is my parent going to die? Is this going to, what is the outcome of this going to be? Um, it's important as we can to be truthful with parent, with children, um, to talk to them as soon as you can, and again, follow their lead with the conversation. Um, and really, how you talk and how you approach it is more important than the actual words that you use. So, um, as a specific example, um, if you have a, a younger children, a, a younger child, more in that preschool age range, um, kindergarten, um, you might, if they ask you, you know, what's going to happen? Are you going to die? You could say something like, you're right, I'm sick, but right now I'm not dying. My doctors are doing the best they can to make me better, and I promise to tell you how I'm doing and if the medicine is helping. So we're not promising anything. We're not saying things we don't know, but we're letting them know in a truthful way what, what's going on. Um, for, for a teenager, this is going to look really different, and so you can kind of see with these words. Um, my cancer is in an early stage, but it is very aggressive. While my doctors are doing the best they can to treat it, we don't know yet how well the medicine will work, but right now we're very optimistic. Or another version of that might be, you know, I might die from this cancer. Um, my doctors are giving me the right therapy to keep this from happening for as long as we can. Um, and this kind of answer respects that older child's ability to, to cope with that kind of additional information and just have that reality. Um, thinking about what if I just can't talk about it or you're not ready, um, that's okay too. Um, having a partner or a friend take the lead, um, seeking out a professional to help with the conversations, or again, using a book to communicate with younger children. Um, last little bit that I'll talk at you about, and then I hope we can chat a little bit more together. It's okay. Families have different ways of communicating. We all learn that from our families of origin, and we all have um, think of ways that we like and don't like the way we communicate, and that's okay. There's no right or wrong. There's nothing you're going to do that's going to make or break something in a conversation, and that's okay. Um, and again, the words are less important than just being there with your child and showing them respect and that you care about them enough to have the conversation. So yeah, let's move on, and so y'all don't have to listen to my voice anymore. <laughs> oh, that's just great, Dr. Stone. Thank you so much. Um, so I guess if you're okay with it, can we go ahead and invite the panelists or the, the couple of patients, so Lindsay and um, Kyle, if you guys will come on up here. And just Maybe, Kyle, could you help us grab a couple chairs, and you guys can just have a seat over by me, and then you know we can just chat. Um, and then, again, if you guys in the audience, whether you're live virtually or um, here in person, if you guys have questions, if you guys have something you'd like to contribute to the conversation, please don't hesitate to let us know. Um, Melody, Julie, is it possible to have a running mic for if somebody has something to contribute that is out in the audience here? I think we can probably do that. We just probably can't do it as much as we did, you know, not every single table. So um, just so that you guys know who's here. Let me just briefly introduce them. Um, this is Lindsay. You guys might recognize her from the podcast episode, Lindsay Brown. 
And she was recently diagnosed just this year, I believe, in May. Um, and then this is Kyle, who I was lucky enough to um, link up with um, after we both started doing a clinical trial at basically like the same time, I think within a month of each other for the adjuvant therapy. Um, so Kyle was diagnosed in 2020 as well, um, like myself. And I am also going to be here because I'm a parent of young children. Uh, so I will also be kind of part of this conversation. I'm Danae. And um, so, yeah, let's, I guess, let's just maybe... I'll just share how old my kids are so that you have an idea, Caitlin um, or Dr. Stone, of how old our kids are because they're, they're all different. Um, I have kids that are nine and six and a half and almost three. So right in the middle of that, that preschool and school age. You want the ages? You want everything? Or? <laughs> my favorite color is green. No, anyways, I'll just go real quick. In 2020, I was diagnosed. My wife, Tanya, back there and I were on our 25th wedding anniversary. COVID was in full effect. Long story short, they're never short. We went to the doctor on vacation, and it just proceeded into she couldn't even go inside because of COVID. So I'm inside, and the doctor goes, you've got cancer. And I'm like, we're on vacation. Nobody has cancer on vacation. But when it happened, it was weird because I had to text her. She's out in the parking lot. So that was the first notification. And then... When I went outside, we were thinking, well, do we, you can't put it on Facebook yet because we got to call the kids. I had a junior and a freshman in college. And you see these slides. It says, you know, adolescents, two to six-year-olds, whether they're 19 and 21, they're still those little kids. I mean, they're still babies. So we told them by phone, and then we went through everything else, went to Will's Eye and did all that. But the takeaway that I noticed is, one kid's like, I could say, hey, I had a flat tire today. Hey, I have cancer. It'd still be like, okay, back to their things. They still took it in, but the other one, the one that wears the heart on her sleeve, I have to keep texting her. You know, and I text and I call whenever there's a scan coming up or there's something new. But she's 21 now, but I still respond to her like a 15 or 14-year-old. And sometimes, like that 2 to 6-year-old, when the thunder hits at nights, you know, they crawl in bed. So it's... I'm sure those that have adult children or kids in their 40s and 50s, it's the same thing. You're the parent. They're still the little kids. So what the, the perfect way is, being a police officer at the time, we've always been very honest with them. So looking back, could we have done anything different? I don't think so. Between COVID and the distance we were away, we wanted them to know. So. That hit me right in the heart when you said, no matter what their age, 21 and 19, they're still, when, when you communicate important things with them, they're still those babies. Ooh, goodness. <clears throat> Hi, everybody. I'm Lindsay Brown. I have three kids. My husband, Ryan, is here videotaping me like a proud partner. <laughs> Thanks, honey. Thank you. Yeah. Um, we have three kids. Uh, Lucy's 12. Vivian just turned five. And Lewis is three and a half. And I was diagnosed on May 18th. We had just gotten back from a family vacation. I went to my eye doctor because my eye was acting funky. Uh, and the snowball happened, like we've all experienced. You go to the eye doctor, you go to the retina specialist. You're told you have cancer. Two weeks later, I had my eye removed. And so I had a very, very short amount of time to process not only this diagnosis, but also the fact that I was about to lose my entire eye. And... I think one of the things that has really helped me process is the moment, the day I got diagnosed, I was putting my daughter to bed. And Danae, we talked about this when I was on the podcast. 
As she was falling asleep, I was Googling ocular melanoma. Big mistake, <laughs> huge mistake. There I was, just a puddle, laying in my daughter's bed. She's falling asleep, blissfully unaware of what's happening. I am having a mental breakdown in that moment. And it was in that moment that I was like, okay, you know those moments as a parent where your kids are crying uncontrollably, un uncontrollably and you're like, use your words. I can't understand what you're saying, use your words. In that moment, I was like, gosh, that's really ineffective. <laughs> Because here I am having those big feelings, and I'm sure there have been many times, Ryan, that you've been like, okay, honey, use your words. Thank you for not saying that out loud to me, but um, I've realized through this process that those big feelings are part of it, and it's helped me be able to sort of navigate when my kids have those big feelings. Um, and it's also been a really important part of my process to bring them into it. Like I said, we had such little time to process the fact that I was about to lose my eye. And so my kids would ask questions like, Mama, are you still going to be the same mom without an eye? And I, was, I couldn't help but say, yes, honey. I'm just going to have a really cool party trick. Like, I will still be the same mom. And when my son now, we've, we've sort of folded them into um, the whole process. And now my three-year-old wants to help me clean my eye. <laughs> So I'll pop it out of my head. He cleans it with the soap. I put the eye drops on it. He pops it back in. And so being able to sort of look at this diagnosis and look at all of the crazy, like, incomprehensible things that have happened over the last few months through the lens of such sweet, um, curious, um, inquisitive kids has really been a blessing to me honestly, in, in working through my feelings and working through all the ways that, that I could spiral if I let myself. It's really easy to spiral with this diagnosis. I know that that's something we all feel. Um, but understanding that just like a little kid has big emotions, I have big emotions about this, my husband has big emotions about this, and letting those emotions be there and being honest about them, I think is really uh, an important part of the a part of the process. Also, I'm going to write a kid's book about OM. Why not, right? So if anyone wants to help me. Yeah, um, let's do it. Let's do it. Because I think I, I love that idea of just having different resources to talk to family about it, especially young kids. Lindsay, thank you. And, and Caitlin, is it okay if I just briefly introduce like my story? Um, and I'll, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail, but like I said, my kids are nine, six, and three. And at the time, my youngest was a baby when I was diagnosed. I mean, she was still breastfeeding, like baby. <laughs> and so for me, I like I did experience a lot of these things that in all of the childhood ranges that we went through, I had the changes to the routine because we went from breastfeeding to bottle feeding because my um, radiation you know, specialist told me that it was important that I, I not be around my baby when I had the brachytherapy. Um, that radiation plaque therapy, like the, the radiation that emits from the plaque, could be harmful to my kids. So for me, I had to I had to prep my kids ahead of time as much as I could, which, I mean, you can't really prep a baby. It just kind of everything just drastically changes. But I was able to prep my then six-year-old and um, my four-year-old or four- or five-year-old um, to just explain, you know, mommy's going to go to grandma's house for a week. And, and I did, you know, just kind of in retrospect, I did just kind of tell it like it is. Like I just told him mommy's going to, I'm going to have some surgery done. They have to like do some stuff to help a part of my eye that got sick. 
Um, and that part of my eye has, and I, I like showed them like a visual, like with my hand. And so like, I just kind of tried to make it concrete and show them like, well, there's something inside my eye that's making it so my eye doesn't work. And they have to go and they have to try to fix it so that it doesn't go and hurt the rest of my body. Um, and, and I just told them in order for that to happen, mommy has to go away for a week so that you guys are safe. But, you know, we can talk on the phone, um, we can FaceTime, all those different things. And then for all of you who have been through brachytherapy, <laughs> that, that week can be hellish. It's very, very difficult. Um, so I had to also juggle, um, I had to also juggle the idea that I was thinking that it was going to go one way and my experience was something totally different. And so explaining that to my kids and helping them and my husband explaining that to them that, you know, you know, mommy's head is hurting really bad right now. She can't talk on the phone. Or why is the phone so dark, mom? I can't see you. Why is it so dark? Well, mommy's eyes hurt when the light is on too bright. Um, just using those simple phrases was really helpful for me at the time of diagnosis. And, and as we've kind of continued, and I'm, you know, now more than two years into this, my kids are growing up in the midst of me experiencing all of, all of the things that you guys are sharing about that we covered in Anne's presentation, all of the unknowns, all of those pent-up emotions. And, and it's been a huge process of self-awareness for me as a parent, like Lindsay was saying, to, to get clear on my emotions and to process them. Because at the end of the day, if, if I am, I'm just going to reference what Anne mentioned, if I'm stomping in the laundry room and I'm slamming doors in the laundry room, that's not going to hurt the laundry room. And sure, maybe it's irrational, and maybe, you know, yes, there's some processing to happen here, but if I'm yelling at my kids, or I'm really frustrated, and, and they don't understand it because I'm not vocalizing it, or I'm not processing it myself, then in my, in my mind, I feel like that does my kids more harm, because I don't, I don't want them to internalize my trauma. I want to process it, and I want us to be able to, to work through it together. Um, so that's become really important to me this last few years. Enough, enough so that just to tell you a funny little story, my three-year-old explained the other day that she was feeling frustrated, which that has never happened before. I've never had a three-year-old of my three kids explain and say, I'm feeling this. Um, so that was really neat to be able to see this, just all of this work that I've been doing as a parent has really paid off. And and I would I would venture to say that 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 processing helps whether you have kids that are three or 30. I don't even know if I answered how I told my kids. We told them on the phone. Sorry, I had like a moment where I flashed out there. But, but when we told them on the phone, it was kind of, again, just that, hey, okay. And then we actually, when I retired, one of the best things we did is we rented a house by their colleges before we moved to Tennessee. And we had bring your, you know, come over for dinner, you know, all that kind of stuff again because they were about three hours away. But um, through that eight months, Tanya, we got to reassure them and kept going. And I think, not that everybody can do that, but just the communication was the best thing. And um, I think one of your slides said there's no right, right, wrong, indifferent. There isn't. There's no, there's no guide how you do this. You know, there's barely a guide sometimes on the treatment of what we all get. But there's no guide on this, and I don't think you can go wrong. And if we do go wrong, we just adjust and just go another way. So that's kind of all I have. I think to speak a little bit more to the fears, and I guess I just didn't realize this fear until today. <laughs> so welcome to my emotional process, everybody. <clears throat> I think the fear of maintaining emotional availability for our kids as their needs grow and expand when we're going through our own stuff <laughs> with this disease, I think is a really big fear that just, just came to me. 
Um, and so I think, again, it speaks to the, the value of vulnerability and honesty when we're processing with our kids. Yeah, I think we have like just a couple minutes left. Um, I'm so thankful for you both coming up here and sharing your stories, all three of you. Um, makes it more real and again, just brings a depth and a validity to what I'm trying to say about the things I know about kids. But um, yeah, I think just remembering that we all, nobody's perfect. We don't process our emotions perfectly. Um, and it's okay for kids to see us, you know, maybe have a moment where we're not at our best. And then, and you're just real about it and say, wow, mommy just, <laughs> I probably did this yesterday. Wow, mommy just yelled and I, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> you know, I, when I, I lost control and I shouldn't have, or, you know, I slammed a door and I shouldn't have, but I'm going to try better next time. Um, someone had shared, I think, um, a great suggestion about school-aged children and preteens to just reiterate to definitely communicate with school um, because when if your child knows about your diagnosis, um, it could be difficult for them and it can affect school performance. And so just having an open communication about that. Well, and, and I'm just for the for the school-aged kids too, I, I have told my kids' schools ever since they started school again after COVID, like, I mean, I've, I've told every single teacher for the last couple of years and just explained briefly, you know, what's happened to our family, what's happened in our family, and also just explained some of the things that I have learned from talking to therapists myself about how, like, like how kids internalize this and, and just how, tried to make sure that my teachers are aware, my kids' teachers are aware, you know, that they might be processing two years' trauma down the road, and you need to be aware that they're going to need that space in school um, to be able to have you as a safe place. Um, there's a question here about um, summer camps for kids who have, um, this person's pointing out that there are summer camps for kids who have lost a family member. Um, in preparing for this, I um, there are some kind of evidence and research-based summer programs for children and kind of outpatient, not even summer, but throughout the year, um, so I can make sure, um, I'll, I'll make sure I can kind of pass along that information um, just for, for parents and for kids to, to support the process. So, um, yeah, and the question is how to find one. Um, so I can, I'll look into that and see what information we can get. Okay, so as Caitlin said, um, when we get those resources, we will actually put those under Caitlin's bio. So you'll be able to find them through the Socio app. And uh, you should be able to find them following this event. It doesn't just disappear in two days. Um, you'll still be able to go and see the live, um, the live recordings from the Socio end of things, as well as the resources. So when we get those, we'll upload those there for you guys. Uh, but Kate, Caitlin, Dr. Stone, thank you so much for being here. Thank you to Lindsay and Kyle for just being vulnerable, being courageous, and talking with us. Um, Dr. Caitlin, do you have anything you want to say to close out? No, just thank you so much for having me. And um, you have my contact info too, so if questions come up, happy to, happy to chat more if that's helpful. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. 
We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.